0: you're listening to feral attraction hosted by metrico and vero the science collie. on this
1: week's show we open with a discussion of the importance of queer history our main topic is on sensual touch and erogenous zones we talk about all the nooks and crannies that can bring pleasure and heighten your sexual experience we close out the show with a question on long distance attraction and some feedback on a question concerning long distance ds from last week's show Hello again, and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. The day is the 28th of June, 1969. It is roughly one month before Neil Armstrong lands on the moon. In the early morning of the 28th of June, police raid a bar in Manhattan, the Stonewall Inn. And this sparks the beginning of the gay rights revolution in America. Now, prior to this point, there have been some movements. There was the Compton Cafeteria Riots in 1966. You have other movement groups that were formed prior to this that focused on nonviolence and integration within society. But it was really the Stonewall riot. That solidified the need for radical and quick change to the way that homosexuals and queer people were seen and respected in the world at large. During the month of June, many countries, many cities celebrate Pride. And we commemorate the Stonewall Riots by having Pride parades in a lot of cities, large and small. Closer to the end of the month of June. We're coming up on the 48th anniversary. I was having a discussion on Twitter, and I asked a question because I was genuinely curious if individuals knew key figures from the Stonewall Riot, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, trans people of color, who would become so important, not just during the Stonewall riot itself, but during the post-gay liberation and gay rights movement. And it came to my attention that not many people really know queer history. As queer individuals, we have the ability to choose our own family. Many of us come from families that reject us because of our queerness, that reject us because of who we are. And we're forced into a world that is oftentimes hostile to our very core identities. It's important to know where we come from, and it's important to know what we stand for and why we stand for it. Now, queer history, especially in America, is sometimes difficult to get written records about because during this time period, the 60s, the 70s, there were many different movements happening. The Vietnam War, protests were occurring. You had civil rights movements for other communities, the black community, the Latino community, and you had so much uprise and so much upheaval within the country. It was difficult to document. And especially during that time where it was illegal to be homosexual in the United States, where it was illegal. To wear clothing that was opposite of the gender that you were born as. People had to hide. People could not be overtly gay. During the Stonewall Riot, it was Marsha P. Johnson's birthday. She was there to just have a good time. And the police raided the facility. Granted, there is an argument that they were serving alcohol without a liquor license, and that's why they went there. But really... Stonewall and other gay clubs, bars, bathhouses, all across Manhattan and the rest of the Fibors and the country became popular targets for police, raiding, and arrest. Men, women who were arrested were publicly shamed, their names published in newspapers. If you were found wearing more than three articles of clothing that were not from your assigned gender, you were arrested. Drag queens, trans individuals, oftentimes had their faces just dunked in mop buckets and their makeup scrubbed off by police. This was a very violent and dangerous time to be gay in the country. <laughs> when the Stonewall riots happened, people were fed up. There was so much anti-gay, just behavior and attitude that was ingrained in the culture at the time. During anti-communism rhetoric, during McCarthyism, during Pink Scare, many people feared that gay individuals were a clear and present threat to American society. And so we were persecuted. But it's important to highlight a few things about this struggle. And it's important to note where we are today and where we've come from. A lot of people that I speak to say that they don't really find gay culture or gay history to be that important to know. That the fact is, is that it's kind of irrelevant to their interests because we've come so far. Why should we be obligated perhaps? Or why should we take the time to get to know where we came from? Gay culture is not a culture to some people. It is an identity. For me, I find the two to be kind of one and the same. Your identity is ingrained into the culture that you create. And again, as gay individuals, we have created that culture. We have created this community. But we have left people behind in the process. When Marsha P. Johnson was arrested, she resisted. When she was dragged out to the Police cars, people started throwing bottles at the police. Rioting started to happen. People were not taking it anymore. And three days later, the rioting finally died down. The riot technically only occurred for a few hours into, you know, the mid morning. But the protests, the marches, the demonstrations were what was important. These riots present a pivotal change in how we as gay people approached society. Up until this point, you really had one group that was really kind of a secret society for gay men, uh, the Mattachine Society. And they proposed a methodology of integration that we as gay people should not seek to elevate ourselves, to elevate our sexual Orientation. But we should show how normal we are, how we can integrate within heterosexual society. After Stonewall, people realized that that was not enough. It is one thing to integrate within a society, and it is another thing to completely and totally dampen your spirit. The Mattachine Society had to be secret, its members were not, uh, it, it wasn't published the leaders of the group wore masks. They were hidden. Nobody knew who they were. It was a secret leadership in a cell-structured organization in order to limit the amount of liability that they had under the laws of the time. When Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera took the helm to trans people of color, they organized so much. Up until that time, they had been organizing for homeless individuals, for homeless trans individuals, for homeless people of color, because those facilities, those resources were not there for them. During this time, the intersectionality of being poor, of being homeless, of developing alcoholism, of developing diseases from being homeless, ran rampant in the gay community, especially in New York City. we've come a long way. We've made a lot of progress, but we've forgotten the people who got us to this point. Part of that is perhaps due to the education that we receive. Part of that is perhaps due to the fact that it is not important to succeed in modern society to know names like Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera. It's not important to know who Ma Rainey was. It's not important to know who Alberto Santos Dumont was. We know people based off of their contributions to society at large. And we reduce them. Uh, The trip for this is flanderize. We flanderize them to being just one thing. Santos Dumont, he was a pioneer in aviation, Brazilian man, who was openly gay and his contemporaries made no attempt to hide this. Most people wouldn't know of him. Most people outside of Brazil probably don't know his name. Ma Rainey, considered to be really the mother of blues in the United States, sang songs about her sexual escapades with women, about her being potentially bisexual or lesbian. She was arrested for a sex party that she had with other women. Most people wouldn't know that name outside of being a blues musician. You have Albert Cashier. Who was a trans individual who fought with the Union during the Civil War? Nobody's heard of them, even though that you know about the Civil War, because that's a very pivotal moment within American culture. You have Wewa, who is a two-spirited individual. She was part of the Zuni Native American tribe from New Mexico, and helped promote the the good spirit and fostered relations between the American government and the Zuni tribe. When she was introduced to President Grover Cleveland, she was introduced as a woman. Weewa is recognized, really, as being one of the first highly documented trans individuals to have ever met a U.S. president. We can look outside of the United States, even though we've spoken about Brazil, we can talk about Willem Arandus, who was a Dutch artist and author, who was part of the anti-Nazi resistance movement, who bombed public records office in Amsterdam to help hide the records of Dutch Jews. He was caught, and he was executed. We can talk about Christina, the Queen of Sweden, who was often spoken about as being a lesbian. These are names that are not taught in history classes. These are names that are not taught because they're not, they're relegated to being a lesser important, more niche part of history. If you know queer history, you might've heard these names, but they're not important to understanding how the world works as a culture, though, as a community, it is important that we understand these individuals, these past pioneers, these past leaders who lived life without fear and sacrificed so much for us. When it comes to recent history, a lot of these records have been lost due to the fact that they were not documented, due to the fact that we no longer have these people killed due to violence, killed due to homophobia, killed due to transphobia, killed due to the AIDS epidemic. All of these records, all of these names, are not spoken anymore. And it's important to understand that we as a culture need to remember these people. Pride is a very fun time for us. We put on our costumes, our shortest of shorts. People go out and drag for the first time. Everybody goes to the parade and waves corporate branded pride flags from Wells Fargo, from Citibank, from Chase. You get beads thrown at you. You see people on rafts, on floats. Some people you might know. Other people are lesser celebrated, but they are far more important to how we got where we are. Stonewall as a name and as an organization stands for a lot for us as a gay community, as a queer community. When Stonewall really first occurred, it was only really gay men, up until that point, who had organized. The Madison community, the society, men only. No women allowed. No trans individuals allowed. Homosexuality was a white man's game. And homosexual, any kind of advocacy, was strictly for white men. Stonewall opened the gates. The fact is is that you had trans individuals, drag queens, genderqueer people, people that came from poor economic status, people that suffered from mental illness, the quote-unquote dregs of society at the time that were the front lines of that riot and the protests that followed. And one year later, they were the ones organizing in Los Angeles and San Francisco And Chicago and New York City and many, many cities nationwide to commemorate. And over time, their identities, their advocacies, their interests have shaped what we have focused on. We have focused on gay homelessness for teenagers and for adults, we have focused on marriage rights, on the right for us to adopt on the right for us to be able to not be denied housing because of sexual orientation. But somewhere along the line, we have lost the intersectionality of what gay rights and gay community is all about. When gay marriage was passed as a right within the United States, many of the gay organizations kind of chilled Rested on their laurels. The HRC, well, that's great. Gay people can get married. Our job here is done. Human rights have been achieved. They brushed their hands off and left our trans brothers and sisters behind. The Stonewall Organization in the United Kingdom, for the longest time, did not care about trans rights and did not advocate for trans rights, even though they are named after a riot that was started. By trans individuals. The intersectionality of gay rights and gay culture has always been a point of liminality. We as gay people touch on every economic class, every race, every sex, every creed. And it is important that we don't lose ourselves to the idea that just because we can marry, that everything is okay. We have to remember the names of Marsha P. Johnson. We have to remember the names of Sylvia Rivera. We have to educate ourselves and leave behind records, easily accessible records, that the next generations can achieve, can find, can understand. When we first discover that we are gay, that we are trans, that we are whatever you might identify as, Oftentimes, you are the first person that you know that identifies that way, especially if you come from small-town America. When I was, I will say, struggling with my sexual orientation and trying to figure out where I stood, I didn't even have a name for it. I just knew that I liked boys. I had no idea that there was a larger identity attached to it. And when I learned about gay, as not just a pejorative, but as an identity. It opened so many doors and helped me to quickly and more better understand who I was as an individual. During Pride, we celebrate the achievements that we have made. And a lot of people get really upset. Why do we even have Pride? Why do we go out in skimpy clothing and It's not pure. It's not clean. It's not child-friendly. We are commemorating a moment that was a riot. There is nothing child-friendly about a riot. There is nothing child-friendly about any of that. It was a dirty, grimy, nasty time in our history. The fact that we are able to take that sheer moment of negativity and turn it into a moment of strength And community bonding is incredibly important. And it serves as a reminder that we might be gay, but we are not frail. We might be queer, but we are not bad. We might be trans, but we are still human. And we are still here, and we are still queer. And you best get the fuck over it. There are many movements that are starting now to help digitize these stories. I know Google recently made a $1 million contribution to help bring the Stonewall Museum to a permanent place on the internet where kids from all around the world can do searches to learn about these names, to learn about these stories in a way that is not whitewashed, in a way that is not removing people of color from the story, in a way. That does not remove or diminish the role of trans individuals that helped us get where we are today. During Pride, and really year-round, our focus as queer people should be helping people that have been left behind. We have definitely left our trans brothers and sisters behind. And especially amongst those of us who are Caucasian, we have definitely made a divide between our brothers and sisters who are minority groups. We should be aiming to help elevate and bring equity to everybody within our community. This is our family. And we are leaving people behind by choice because we're sated, we're happy. We can get married. That's all we really wanted. But other people are still being denied housing, are still being fired for going to their jobs and being who they are. People are still afraid to be gay or trans or act themselves in public so they hide. Part of pride and part of being an out individual is that you show to other people who are not yet able to be out, who do not feel comfortable with being out, that it is okay, that it is a possibility. Some straight people during pride get upset and they say, Well, why is there no straight pride? Why is this not a thing? Because there's no need for that. Being straight as an identity has always been the baseline throughout history. It should be our goal when we are out. And proud to actually be proud and not be afraid to show who we are. And when people ask you, can you tone it down? Can you be less gay? Can you not hold hands with your boyfriend? To hold that hand even harder, firmer, warmer, deeper, to be as in your face as possible. Because that is the only way, historically speaking, that we have been able to secure rights and be able to show the next generation of queer kids that guess what? There are other people like you. And you might come from small town Florida. You might come from Back Swamp, Indiana. You might come from a small farming town in Kansas. But guess what? You're not alone. You have a family. And your family has and always will love you. We have to know our history. We have to know where we came from. The second that we abandon history, the second that we abandon knowledge, is the second that we say that we are good enough. And we will never be good enough as long as we keep holding back and leaving behind members of our family.
0: So I think, you know, the real key to me for, you know, pride and things like that, too, is not only remembering some of the sacrifices made by. You know, as we mentioned, trans people, I think, you know, there's a huge amount of advocacy and uh, rights that still need to be secured for trans folk, especially because considering the fact that trans folk are essential to queer history and you know Stonewall being the quintessential example, but all throughout queer history, trans individuals have been at the forefront of advocacy because, frankly, they can't hide anywhere, right? And that's really the thing: is those individuals who, individuals who are are the least privileged, are those who can't hide their queerness, and those are people who are extremely effeminate, and those are people who are uh, who are transsexual, right? So because of that, because people who you know have this compromised masculinity essentially, according to some societal views, right, to compromise masculinity. People who struggle with that have always been at the forefront of gay and LGBT advocacy. And so we really need to not let, leave these people behind now that we secured, you know, we speaking as a gay, primarily right now as a gay male, we as, you know, as a gay male, I have the right now to marry my husband. That's awesome. But I can't give up. I can't say, okay, we did our job. Everything's done now because I've got what I've needed, because trans people can still get fired for being trans, they can still be denied healthcare in certain circumstances. They can be denied gender-affirming surgery. Uh, they, all sorts of things can happen depending upon your jurisdiction. And so we can't give up. I mean, in many cases, trans people are still being murdered. Right? I mean, this is not a this is not a joke at all. So we cannot give up that fight. And it's really important to remember the trans the struggle, of the trans individual. And as queer people, we still we need to remember the big tent. That we used in order to secure our rights. And we can't just you know worry about ourselves now that we secured them, right? We have to remain a big tent. now we have to fight for the other, the underdogs, people who haven't gotten the rights yet. And you know, another part of that tent eventually is probably also gonna be the polyamorous community. It's gonna, you know, hopefully the queer community is gonna be right there with the poly community and also trying to secure poly rights, right? All of these sexual minority groups need to stick together in order to maintain a united front and and be relevant in a society that is still very, shall I say, traditional uh, and, you know, oriented, right? We're very, you know, 90% of us are still straight and, and monogamous. And so as a result of that, it's very hard to, you know, there's an empathy gap that results from that because most people just don't have exposure to or understanding of the world we live in. So it's always going to be important for us to Defend each other and have each other's backs and say, no, no, you can. I, you know, you can empathize with me. I, I look similar enough to you that maybe you can empathize with me. Now allow me to help you empathize with that even queer to you looking person over there. Right. So be the connector when somebody says, oh, yeah, you know, I can totally understand how you and Fred are married. That's fine. But I don't understand that guy down the street who dresses up in, in drag and in, you know, wears sissy clothes and, you know, says he's a woman, you know, and, and then that becomes your job to say, you know what? You know, I, I totally understand why that's weird for you, but let me explain to you why he does that and what that represents for him. And maybe you can under, try to understand a bit better, right? So try to be that empathy enabler. Try to be that connecting piece. Try to, be, try to help enable empathy for those who are more, even more different than you might be to someone, right? So that's one huge role that pride still serves is this, unite, this solidarity and the united block, the united front, That we need to represent as queer and non traditional individuals. And the the next point, very related to that, is also, you know, we have to remember as well that banding together is also a matter of our our health and safety. I mean, it's not too long ago that we had the AIDS crisis, and that was, you know, AIDS was a death sentence. And fortunately, people in my generation and those a bit younger than me really didn't have to ever deal with a, a world in which living with AIDS was a death sentence. When I grew up, though, I was certainly raised to believe it was. And I grew up with the stigma and the fear of HIV because in the '90s it was it was the, the school materials on HIV were incredibly scary, right? So I think it's important to still have the memory though, because younger kids didn't even deal with that so much, right? And so a lot of younger individuals don't really even have much of an understanding of the HIV crisis or the fact that you know being gay used to really be a death sentence, whether you were going to be you know beaten up by the cops or killed by HIV. Being gay was a death sentence, right? And that had a huge and profound influence on an entire generation of gay men and and, and queer individuals, right? So it's really important because, you know, I I discuss this with with Metrico often that, you know, unfortunately, gay and queer culture is largely a Bardic tradition. It's very much an oral tradition. There isn't a lot of things written down. There's not a lot of written records. And so, you know, even this podcast, maybe, you know, we're, we're talking about it. We're getting some kind of a record of what we're talking about. But it's really, really important to be able to keep track of all this important stuff that's happened in the queer community and to be aware of where we've come from and to remember all the people who've helped us along the way and not forget those people, right? Because it's really important not to forget that trans individuals were the vanguard of the gay rights movement. And so now we need to be the vanguard of the trans rights movement, right? The gay community now needs to be the vanguard of the gay rights movement. We need to help the rest of society come around on the trans issue, right? That's our job. And we need to take that as a very solemn job because they were there for us, right? We need to remember that. I think that's really the key thing. And you know, during Pride Month, that's the point that I really want to hit home is that we need to be there for those who are there for us. And that, that is a pretty sacred obligation, in my opinion.
1: And it's not even enough to rest on those, those kind of laurels. We need to be there as a force for all minority groups. Women's rights are gay rights. Minority rights are gay rights. We need to be able to be supportive of all other groups that struggle with oppression, that struggle and face oppression on a daily basis. This is where intersectionality really comes into play. And it is important that we not abandon that idea. For many, many years, you could be a white gay male. And, hey, you're, you're fine. Everybody likes you. Everybody adores you. But the second that you're black, Latino, Latina, what well, any minority group, you face more oppression and more scrutiny because you come from, well, you're different. You're not like me. We need to be there to help everybody understand that you can be successful and be a gay black male. You can be successful and be a trans black woman. You can be successful however you are. The fight for equity is one that we have to take very seriously. And it is something that we as gay individuals should continue to be focused on and should continue to fight for. Pride is a great time to meet people who have been through the trenches when I did Pride way, way, way back down in Florida, there were a few times where people shot at us. There were a few times where people would leave Pride and their Pride get up and, and they wouldn't make it home. Marsha P. Johnson was such an individual who was murdered right after a Pride celebration and left to float dead in the river. We have to take this seriously. I understand that there's a lot going on in the world, and I understand that many people's attentions are devoted to other areas, and that's okay. I'm not saying that you need to immediately become an expert historian in gay rights and gay culture and in you know, the gay movement throughout centuries, throughout time immemorial. What I am saying, though, is that you should take the time to identify your place within the gay community and to see what you can do to help the fight, to help the protest, to help the movement to attain equality and equity for everybody in this family. To show that everybody has the ability to be as successful as you are and to make the world a better place. For the generation that follows, that was really a lot of the struggle that our, our forerunners went through that Marsha P. Johnson, that Sylvia Rivera, that Harvey Milk, all of these individuals that faced opposition every turn fought for. It's not a matter of location. I live in New York city and trans individuals are murdered on the street on a regular basis. This happens in our liberal bastions in America. This happens in small-town America. We have to keep fighting. We have to keep educating ourselves. We have to keep strong. These sorts of movements take a long time. This movement for just the right to be married, I mean, it took nearly 40 years to get done. That's... that's Over a lifetime, for a lot of individuals during that time period, due to violence, due to HIV, many people fought for something that they would never see come to fruition. And while you don't have to give up your life now, you don't have to sell off all of your belongings and join the Gay Liberation Front, you should find ways to be active in your local community. You should find ways. That you can use your talents and your knowledge and your experience to further the fight. You may not be amazing at graphic design, but you might be good at public speech. You can use that. We need that. You may not be good at at community networking, but you might be an amazing author. We need to write down our stories. You might be amazing at photography or at taking video. We need to document. Everything that we do for future generations. We need to be better is really what all this comes down to. I spoke about the Stonewall organization in the United Kingdom, and it took them until 2014 to finally include trans individuals in the umbrella of causes that they officially fought for. 2014. 2014, we can consider that to be the moment of stonewall for trans individuals, even though that really happened in 1969, everybody. We need to stay strong. We need to stop thinking of trans people as somebody different than us, because they are us. We are them. We may not share the identity, but we share the struggle. They were there to help us get where we are. Now it is time for us to return the favor. Growing up and the way that I did in such a conservative area with a very conservative family, I owe a lot to pride. I owe a lot to the vocal, the out, the, the unflinching gay people that were laughed at, that were scorned by media figures. By my parents, by the church that stood tall and firm and kept a straight face and never backed down. We owe it to them. We owe it to the people that got us where we are today. And we owe it to the people, to the children, to the generations yet to come. There is a lot going on in this world, it's a scary, scary place people are afraid. I'm afraid. But we don't have to allow fear to dominate our mind. We don't have to allow fear to dominate the discourse. You could be scared. You could be unsure. The future is nothing if but an uncertainty. But we can still stand strongly and face that adversity, face the uncertainty. And show that you can be strong. This is the other side of it getting better. Congratulations, it has gotten better. Now make it better for other people. And that's really what gay rights is about. So I challenge listeners, if you are unfamiliar with what Stonewall was, with what the life and times of individuals, of queer people living in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s in America and all across the world, what they went through during the remainder of this month. And whenever you find it possible, find movies that exist. Paris is Burning is a great documentary if you're interested in drag culture and what it was like in New York City during the 80s and 90s. There's a life of Marsha P. Johnson that you can study, that you can watch with interviews with her. There there are so many materials that are currently available. You can, hell, you can go on Wikipedia if that's what it takes. But try to educate yourself a little bit more. Because the second that you start standing up is the second that you present yourself as almost a figure of authority. And we need to educate ourselves in order to allow for people to come to us, for people to seek knowledge from us so we can share our stories, share our struggles, and present a human face to something that many people want to eradicate. I know this is kind of a heavy sort of subject, but this has been really weighing on me for some time. It's important to not forget the struggles. It's important to not forget the people. It's important to not forget what we still have left to do. And I know that a lot of people would just rather be gay and live a normal life. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine. You can be a strong gay person, a strong queer individual without having to go to every rally, every protest, You can live your life however you see fit. But for people that feel inclined, for people that feel motivated, for people that still dislike to see injustice in this world, take action. It starts with you. We're going to move on from this to a little bit of a lighter subject. Um, thank you for sticking with me and Vero on that. I know that, again, it was very heavy. and
0: We like to mix business with pleasure on this podcast, you know. Yeah.
1: We're going to talk about sensual touch and erogenous zones as our main topic. A lot of the questions that we get, um, what happens if somebody you know, doesn't necessarily get off on penetration, on oral sex? What are ways that they can... Accentuate ways that they can enhance the sexual experience for not only themselves, but for their partners, for their mates? What are ways that you can take it from being kind of plain vanilla and add a little bit of spice to it? Well, the good news is that the human body is kind of equipped with sensitive places, uh, erogenous zones, that are different on every person and different from between male and female. But these are places that you can kind of apply a little bit of focus, a little bit of attention, a
0: little bit of love, and come to enjoy new sexual heights. I kind of feel like these are the, no pun intended, soft skills of sex that a lot of people, when they kind of say, oh, you're really good in bed, it's not necessarily the thrusting they're talking about, but oftentimes it's really the awareness and the utilization of erogenous zones in such a way that the sexual experience is really enhanced and the arousal is heightened to the point that the sexist feels better because the person is actually more fully engaged and more is more present in the moment, right? And so that's really, I think, why learning what exactly where to touch and how to touch and what is effective is really kind of the the trick to being a more effective lover in a lot of cases, especially when it's the physical side of lovemaking that might be the part that's more intimidating for you, right? For a lot of people, that is the more intimidating part is the actual mechanics of how okay? I'm, I finally got this person naked in my bed. Great. Now I know that they've got holes I can use. But what else do I? What else should I be doing? Like, what do I do with my hands? Right. Like, it's kind of an old joke of what do I do with my hands? Right. But like, right. you should be doing something with your hands most of the time. It's kind of important to keep them engaged. So, you know, I think we can start out with talking about um, the female zones I think maybe I'll. I'll lead on this topic a little bit just because I happen to be bisexual and I've actually had sex with women before. So it's more of a direct experience thing for me. Whereas with you, I think it's more theoretical, right? Right, Platinum gay. Yay! Yay, platinum gay. Okay. So a lot of people – and, you know, it's really unfortunate, sex education being what it is these days. A lot of people, including – Uh, females (laughs) excuse me don't even have a very good understanding yeah especially females don't have a very good understanding of the rajna zones, especially of their own rajna zones, and they might not even be aware of where they need to be touched in order to come which is absurd to me but apparently a lot of women don't have orgasms and don't even know how to and like this is like scary for me because like orgasms are cool and fun and Rather uh, important for like regulating one's mental health, I feel like. But yeah. apparently, uh, a lot of women just don't have access to this because our sexual education is basically designed around commoditizing and shaming women into thinking that their bodies are only for male's use. Uh, it seems to be kind of the gist that I get. Um, but anyway, uh, females actually, it turns out, have lots of places you can touch them that feel really good and that can contribute to sexual arousal and sexual satisfaction during a female sexual encounter with you, right? Uh, I think number one with a bullet is one that should be obvious, but unfortunately isn't because a lot of women don't even know where the, where this is, don't know what it is. A lot of men have no idea that this is a thing or that simulating this is important. But this is the clitoris, which. Essentially, the way to think of the clitoris, and I think it's a really good way of thinking about it, a lot of people are like, oh, I, that's, that sounds really strange, it sounds really foreign, I'm a guy, I have no idea what that is. Well, think of it as basically the glands or the head of your penis, except that's all a woman really has, and it's kind of shrunken down a little bit to being kind of more like the size of, you know, a little bit less of, than, you know, your pinky, but kind of under, mostly underneath the tissue of the uh, female genital tract, basically. So the very little of the clitoris is actually exposed. The little bit that is is kind of just this little tip that's exposed, and there's these clitoral kind of wings that kind of go backwards into the female's body, and those can be stimulated during penetration. But the clitoris is actually exposed on the outside, and it's essentially right above the openings for basically uh, urinating and also for penetration. So if you're looking at a female's g- genitalia head-on, the Clitoris is basically at the top. And then as you work your way down, you've got the holes for your nation and penetration and then the butt, right? So that's kind of the female tract all in a row and lined up kind of in 2D space. So that's really important to keep that in mind. But the thing is, and this is a kind of startling thing, considering that most people don't even know where it is, uh, something like more than half of women require intense clitoral stimulation in order to come. So I'll say that again, most women... Cannot come if all you're doing is penetrating them and not stimulating their clitoris. So it's essentially like trying to make a man come while only like rubbing the base of his cock. Yes, some men will be able to come from rubbing the base of their cock, especially if they're really excited or really pent or whatever. But most men are going would like you to play with the head of their dick as well, right? It might be a little bit sad or might not be quite as sexually satisfied if you didn't also play with the head of their penis. So. Think of ignoring a woman's clitoris as being like ignoring the head of their penis, and when you think of it that way, it's kind of like, wow, that would be really shitty. But a lot of people just through ignorance have no idea, and so they don't play with the clitoris; they don't even realize it's a thing. Now you have to be very careful. Like the head of the penis, it's a very sensitive place to touch, so you don't want to just be you know jamming on it, right? It's not like it's not like you know you're you're playing you know you're, you're button mashing a, a fighting game, right? This is not the way you want to be treating your clitoris, right? It's not whack a mole. But, you know, clitoris is something that you want to be, you know, think think of it again, like like as you would treat the head of someone's penis, you want something you can suck on, you can lap at, you can kind of gently stroke, right? But you don't want to be jabbing or prodding or poking or being very vi- vigorous or aggressive with it. And some women might enjoy that kind of simulation, but for most women, that'll be too intense, right? So be gentle, be, be you know, loving with your clitoris and that, that, that will hopefully produce good results for you. Many women... Uh, will be able to come very easily if you give them intense, focused clitoral, clitoral stimulation, either with your hand or uh, often with your mouth is one of the best ways to make a woman come. But take it from me anyway, it works for me. But um, anyway, like, you know, your mileage may vary, but that's a, a good old trick. The other th- jet thing is because of those clitoral wings that I mentioned before, if you are ever uh, stimulating a female with your... Digits, as in you're pawing, you know, a female off. Uh, The come hither gesture is kind of famous for being able to apply some clitoral stimulation internally. That's where you essentially kind of insert your fingers into uh, the vagina and kind of stroke upwards towards the clitoris with your fingers. That can actually stimulate the inside uh, portion of the clitoris and be very pleasurable for a female as well, and can help bring a woman closer to orgasm. So there you go. That's the clitoral female erogenous zone in a nutshell. Yes. Metrica, sorry, I've been keeping very patient. You've been trying to sit, talk for ages, and I've been having this wonderful long run on a sentence. Now I get it's to catch It's
1: completely fine. It's all good. So, I actually wanted to touch on that last part. So, a lot of people confuse the clitoris and the G spot uh, with women. So, what you were talking about, that come hither, so a gesture that you can make with your digit. Um, so, the G spot is uh, its short term for the Grafenberg spot. And it's actually about two knuckles' length inside of a female's uh, vagina, and it's on that top wall, above belly button side, we'll call it, and it has a slightly different texture than the rest of the vagina. And with gentle or however you know, however stimulating that you know the the woman would want it to be, that is a good place that can present amazing orgasms, and that's also a place that oftentimes will cause female ejaculation to occur if you provide enough stimulation. It's important to note that female ejaculation is not urine. It is completely separate, and a lot of people really enjoy that. It's a great show of pleasure, and it's not something that you should kind of embarrass anybody about or shame anybody about. You come out of your dick, they can come out of their vagina. But it's important (laughs) to kind of know where these points are, because there is a lot of confusion about the anatomy of a vagina. You know, for men, it's kind of easy to identify where everything is because it's on the outside. And then when you see medical graphs of vaginas, you're like, "Uh, it looks kind of like a ram's head. I don't know what I'm looking at. Take time to kind of explore these. If you are going to digitally penetrate your female partner, it is important to keep in mind your nails because this is very sensitive tissue. If you have long nails or nails that are kind of jagged, they aren't trimmed, you can actually cause a lot of pain and damage. So make sure that if you're going to digitally penetrate really anybody, make sure that your nails are not too crazy. Like make sure that they are trimmed
0: and they are clean. Otherwise you can cause more pain than pleasure. Yeah, the last part I will make. So, I think uh is quite right about the G spot too. I was what I was referring to is the fact that when most people are doing that, the G spot is actually not that easy to identify in the majority of women. And so, you might think you're stimulating the G spot, What you're actually doing when you're do, using that gesture is probably stimulating the clitoral wings. But if you're lucky, you'll you also may, might be hit the G spot, right? But in most cases, that you're actually not going to, and it's actually not like unless you get really familiar with a partner and know exactly how their anatomy works it's actually kind of uh, unlikely that you'll be able to identify a random stranger's g-spot on the first try it's kind of a it's something you kind of right. find as you're exploring someone and you kind of get to know it and get to know how it is represented or manifested in a given individual over time so don't expect to like approach like a new lover and be like okay I'm not going to spend like a 20 second cursory inspection on your vagina and know exactly how to do everything to you. Right. Cause that's like that, that might work a bit, like even on men, that's not the easiest thing to do with a penis, but it's like a thousand times harder to do with a female anatomy. So just don't like guys, don't be too hard on yourselves. Not maybe like learning how exactly to pleasure a woman, like on the extreme first try, but at least have like the rough floor plan in your mind. So you kind of have an idea of what might feel good. Right. That's kind of what we're going for. Yeah. So that's the big one. Um, Another one on women is actually kind of surprising. It might actually be a little less so on women than in men, but mouth and lips are are erogenous zones in females. And it turns out that the reason why they're erogenous zones in females is actually less because they are sensually important for females. They're actually more sensually important for men. But because women are so emotionally driven by sex, the fact that they have this very strong romantic attachment to kissing ends up making it such that kissing and stimulating a female's uh, lips is still a huge uh, erotic driver for most women. So things like uh, touching a woman's lips with your fingers in kind of a sensual way, or uh, licking or sucking on during kissing, any of those types of things, but uh, nibbling on uh, those types of activities. All that kind of stuff can be very pleasurable, feel very good. There are still a lot of nerve endings in the lips and and the tongue obviously being such a uh, motile uh, kind of muscular organ can do a lot of fun things. So there's a lot of uh, sensual and erotic play that can be done with mouths uh, and macking on each other, right? So that's a, a really good one. And that one, you know, one of the key components of making out is obviously the mouth and lips, but another huge component often ends up being the neck, right? So a lot of uh, you know heavy petting and making out involves a lot of breathing on and lapping at and nibbling on the neck. And so in women, the neck is a hugely important erogenous zone. And all those types of stimulation I just mentioned are probably going to feel extremely good. One thing, and kind of a neat trick that I like to use, and I, I do this a lot when I'm being intimate myself, is using your warm breath on one, someone's neck can feel amazing. And it can be a really great way of prolonging uh, sex and kind of teasing uh, out the play, and making it last longer. Before you go directly to touching someone's neck, first start out by just exhaling uh, slowly over their neck and making them feel kind of warm and moist in that way. And then you can proceed from that into kind of l- licking and nibbling and sucking and stuff like that. that I will guarantee you will make a partner feel pretty darn good. But the neck, the reason for that is because, again, the neck of it is an erogenous zone. There's a lot of nerve endings, and it tends to really make uh, – there's also a lot of vulnerability associated with playing with one's neck. And because of that, there's also a lot of uh, tie-in to submissiveness. So if you're a dominant uh, partner, uh, playing with someone's neck, kind of touching their neck – going out of your way to touch the neck, even if you're not doing anything even close to breath play, but just the fact that the neck is a very vulnerable part of one's body, uh, there can be a kind of a fearful erotic drive that comes from neck or touching the neck as well. And so that's another reason why it can be a kind of a, an erotically charged thing to, to stimulate.
1: I mean, even in American culture, like back in the 1940s and 50s, we didn't say that you were making out. We said that you were necking, you know, it, it was kind of the thing that, you know, oh, I'm neck. you know you know, Sheila and I went out to the date you know, to, to the dance and afterward we, you know, did a little you know, she necked me a little bit. We had some necking. People would refer to that. And then in the nineteen fifties, later on, it became known as making out or kissing or petting. But really necking was the the vernacular that people would use to to imply that they were making out, that they were, you know, engaged in clothed sort of sexual play. And it was, you know, it's, it's a very large show of affection, sexual attraction. You know, necking is something that's very important uh, for many of the reasons that Vero said. It's a sign of vulnerability. It's a sign perhaps for some of submission, but because of all of the nice, delightful nerve endings, you know, it can be very pleasurable. Just make sure to not go too hard balls out, walls out on that. Um, some people don't appreciate having hickeys on their neck when they go into work and they have to wear a turtleneck in the middle of the summer looking at you past boyfriend um, but yeah, it can be a very nice pleasurable erogenous zone. Um, another kind of place that it, for women sometimes the the actual bottle, the anus is a erogenous it's an erogenous zone. Um, rimming, light rubbing, slight penetration. Some women do enjoy um anal sex, uh, because you do get a little bit of clitoral and vaginal sort of stimulation coming from that side as well. And it can be something that is incredibly pleasurable. Um, I do think that perhaps some men make a little bit too big of a deal off anal, but in terms of like I'm a straight man and I'm going to fuck my wife in the ass, you know, anal for women is somewhat the same as anal with men just with the absence of a prostate so make sure that you take the proper precautions make sure that if you're going to engage in anal play that you do a little bit of cleaning you do a little bit of yard work as we'll say the little bit of pre-work to make sure that it is as pleasurable as possible and understand that accidents happen when it comes to anal um for for any gender but the butthole has a lot of nerve endings it's very sensitive breathing on it, licking it, touching it, rubbing it, penetrating it can be very pleasurable for people of both genders.
0: Yeah um, And then like the obvious ones I think too uh, they're not just for looking at right So breasts and nipples that sort of play there's a reason why um, you know, People are kind of obsessed with female breasts. It's not just because they look nice and turn men on. It's also because most women also enjoy having them played with. So, you know, you want, again, you want to make sure that you're keeping it pleasurable and keeping stimulation uh, from being painful because there are, you know, a lot of nerve endings, again, in the breasts and the nipples. So, you, know, you want to keep the stimulation from being too aggressive. You're not needing bread, right? <laughs> so, keep that in mind. But, uh, you know, definitely keep stimulating the breasts and nipples, sucking on, lapping at... Uh, sometimes lightly scratching over all those types of stimulation can be pleasurable depending upon the person you're talking to.
1: Now, one note that I will make for uh, women that are transitioning, um, sometimes hormones can make the nipples incredibly sensitive. So you want to make sure that it is something that is enjoyable and pleasurable. You don't just want to like immediately go in and start like pinching and twisting uh, because sometimes nipples can be incredibly and
0: overly sensitive for some people. so Sometimes there's also an emotional sensitivity as well. So (coughs) you mentioned transitioning, excuse me, but that's also an important point to mention. So some people, especially uh, those who might be female to male transitioning, might not wish to have their breasts exposed or might not wish to have them touched because they're a reminder of their dysphoria. And so they don't actually, they kind of want to pretend they're not there. And so Touching or playing with the breasts that might normally be sensually uh, pleasurable is actually emotionally traumatizing because of the dysphoria that's at play there. So it's always good, if you're, yeah. especially if you're uh, with a trans individual, to say, "Hey, you know, what 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 areas of your body are off limits? What areas of your body would you not like me to touch?" Because oftentimes that will be an that might be an issue that comes up.
1: And if you're also with an individual, you know, with a woman who is currently nursing sometimes the nipples can be overly stimulated very quickly. So it's important to listen to your partner, to listen to what she is telling you. And if she tells you to stop, chances are you should stop. I understand that it might be something that you're attracted to, the bosoms. But in some cases, it can just be a little bit too much of a sensory experience. It can lead to extreme pain. So you want to make things pleasurable, not painful. That would be a type of bad pain, not good pain. So just be mindful of that. And it's always good, as Vera said, to ask your partner, you know, hey, what are some area? you know, is there an area that you don't want me to touch? You don't want me to manipulate because of various reasons from dysphoria on. So it's important to have that in, in the back of your mind, just, you know, especially with the breasts, especially with the nipples, because that, that's an area that for some people they don't find stimulating. For some people it's overstimulating. So just be mindful
0: of that so uh yeah next up would be ears and this is one that's a little bit weird for people because why are the ears a sexual organ but it just turns out there's a ton of nerve endings in the ears and because of that anywhere there's a lot of nerve endings often becomes very pleasurable to touch during sex so when someone's already aroused and you're then stimulating their ears through light touch or through breathing on them sucking on them sometimes even whispering in them, the, the vibrations of the air can be very st- stimulating and very gentle. So any, a variety of types of stimulation on the ears can be very pleasurable. And also, because they're uh, cartilaginous and because there's not a lot of bones in them, it can be a little bit rougher with ears, and, and it, it can still be kind of pleasurable. So nibbling on, kind of gnawing on somebody's ears, depending upon you know whether you're into doing some kind of uh, – you know, BDSM play or some kind of pup play that any of those types of more feral types of play can a lot of times playing with the ears or nibbling on the ears can be a very enjoyable part of sex. Uh, And there's also kind of intimacy to that because naturally your head is very near the other person's head if you're playing with their ear. So um, that can also really aid intimacy in general, not just the erogenous aspect of it.
1: Just be careful if there are piercings, you don't want to be too rough with the piercings because it can cause uh, tissue tearing, So if you're going to engage in, we'll call it heavy earplay, you might consider taking out your piercings beforehand if possible. Uh, But, you know, licking, breathing, gentle nibbles. I mean, I have um, stretched earlobes with um, uh, plugs in them, so that doesn't really present a problem for me. But in cases where I have a partner that is super duper into it and wants to go full out, It is something that I do take into consideration because I don't want to risk having my lobe get ripped. So just be mindful of that practice, you know, safe ear play, we'll call it (laughs) and try not to lodge anything within the ear canal. You can put your tongue in there, but try not to like put anything, bring anything along with the ride. If you have like food substance or anything like that, um, what I recommend is brushing your teeth prior to kind of engaging in any kind of sex play. Because that way you're not depositing an excess amount of debris or bacterium into the ear canal, which can cause infection. And also kind of of become a little bit comfortable with the idea that you might taste a little bit of earwax. It's kind of natural. Don't worry about it. Don't shame them. Everybody
0: has earwax. It's cool. (laughs) Indeed. And then next up, uh, right next to the ears, the scalp is also a very sensitive area. So uh, scalp massage um, kind of gently pulling on someone's hair, uh, those types of stimulation can be very pleasurable as well. So keep that in mind. And this is what works particularly yeah. well with females who have longer hair, obviously. If you're playing with a butch lesbian who's probably got hair shorter than I do, uh, then in that case, the scalpel massage might be your route, of, or, or even sometimes uh, you can actually, this might sound weird, but you actually can lick the top of somebody's head and that can feel really good. It's not something you think about, but like you see dogs do it and they enjoy it but like it works for people too so and you definitely will see other primates do that kind of thing so grooming behaviors like picking at someone's skin or lapping at them those types of behaviors can actually be very intimate and very pleasurable during sex as well
1: you know the uh i don't know what it's called but the scalp massager that has like octopus style tendrils that you can kind of shape and a lot of people go kind of crazy for that. It's because there are a lot of nerve endings. And if you find that you aren't getting good results with your hands, you can also use things like the scalp massagers to kind of bring about that feeling of, you know, erogenity. Uh, I believe it's – I think it's erogenity, but I'm terrible at saying that. I don't but know if
0: that's a word or not, to be perfectly
1: honest, and that's saying something. It is. I, I spell checked it. Is it.
0: Really? Okay. Wow. Yeah. I learned something. Boom. Okay.
1: So – You know, scalp massagers and other kinds of toys that are devoted to, you know, being pleasurable for the scalp are also a great tool that you can bring into the bedroom in order to kind of enhance that kind of a massage.
0: Excellent. Now let's talk about men. I like talking about men because I'm homoflexible and I I think all this can say men are pretty great here. Seeing as, you know, you're gay, I'm mostly gay. Um, So this is the fun part for us here. Uh, so the penis. Now we have to talk about penises. This is, everyone likes to talk about penises. Okay. So penis. It's a very erogenous area. It's kind of like a duh. I mean, it's the, it's the obvious place to touch a man. One thing I will say, though, and this is actually a really important point that a lot of people don't take into account. Many men do not like having their penis touched until after they are already aroused. It turns out the penis doesn't like being t- necessarily being touched until a male is already in a comfortable and aroused state. Because think about it, that's not the, that's really not the thing that you would engage first in a more natural sexual encounter, right? Normally there would be touching, rolling around, foreplay, maybe some some courtship behaviors, some more, you know ritualistic sorts of play that would happen before the penis is getting engaged, right? So going right for the penis or diving right for the penis that can be a little bit uh, actually not pleasurable for a man. So uh, and so, you know, the male says, Oh, you know, don't rush me or like, I need a bit more foreplay. The need for foreplay is often because jumping right to stealing the penis can be really unpleasant.
1: I actually had a boyfriend in college that did not quite understand that fact. Um, so we would be hanging out and then he would just kind of reach over and grab my lump dick. And it's like, I'm not really ready for that quite yet. Like, this action is not quite available. I mean, I don't mind that you're touching me, but, like, maybe we could kiss a little bit, roll around, neck a little bit. You know, I would like to be able to take off my clothes before we get to that point, maybe. You know, it's it's there is a slight amount of ritual, perhaps, when it comes to men. Um, to be quite honest, like, if you touch my lump dick, it's not going to be super-duper pleasurable for me. It's just kind of like, oh, hey, you're holding a lump of flesh of mine, but... Because there's not really engorgement of the blood vessels. There's really nothing pleasurable to me. I mean, it's like I'm taking a shower and I'm washing myself with a washcloth right now. Like, you know, I I like you and everything and we're dating and I would love to have, you know, this to be good. But maybe you could do a little bit, you know, more for me in terms of getting me
0: to that point. Well, honestly, like with myself and a lot of men, even if you're erect, an erection is is a sign of arousal, but it, you can be erect and actually not be that turned on. In fact, with me, an erection can happen very easily. And I'm still not actually that aroused. And you might think, wow, he's really, he's like raring to go, but actually, no, I'm just hard. So like, yes, my dick is hard, but touching my dick when it's hard and I'm not actually mentally aroused is actually really unpleasant because like my dick is still sensitive and I'm getting like the feelings of like, you know, stimulation but my mind is not on any kind of arousing topic so it just kind of feels icky and I don't like it so I really like it's something that I've actually had an issue with some of my mates too it's like maybe my mate goes and reads it like a, a really hot story and like you know I might just like get a random erection like they're completely like ready to go and I'm not actually all that like I'm not really on the, in the same place as them. Like they're, I'm not in that mental space. Maybe I'm like finishing up work or something. And yeah, maybe like I, I walk past the bedroom and I see like one of my mates pawing off, and I like I, I get I, I get a boner. But I'm actually still not that aroused because my mind is still elsewhere. If my mate then comes and jumps over and immediately goes for my dick, that's actually not going to feel that great. I would still like a lot more foreplay and a lot more. Kind of time to kind of task switch into sexual activity before we jump right to the dick stimulation. So I tell my right. partners, like, hey, can you please not touch my dick yet? Like, we're not quite, I'm not quite there. Like, let's, we can do lots of other things. Let's go with all the other wonderful Rajana we're about to talk about, but I don't, I'm not quite ready for penis to be the main event yet, right?
1: Yeah. There is a little bit of like a transitional headspace that kind of has to, you have to go through because. Especially, like, if you're me and, like, I get home from work, I'm still kind of decompressing from the work day. I'm not necessarily in the bone zone, we'll call it. I need to kind of relax, kind of get into the mood a little bit. Um, An erection does not imply arousal. Uh, It just implies that the dick is hard. So, you know, make sure that everything is raring to go. It's sex is not just about your genitals. It's about the overall experience and... If you feel that every time that you're hard, you have to have sex, then it becomes mechanical and boring. So make sure that it's pleasurable. And a lot of the pleasure does come from mental stimulation. So, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to note about the penis because every penis is different in size and shape and color. There's really no difference. There's little to no evidence that I'm able to find that shows that circumcision decreases sensation or sexual satisfaction. Um I do know that there are some people who believe that. Um I'm not really able to find much in terms of overall experience that people have.
0: Yeah and the reason for that seems to be neuroplasticity. So the problem with like mm-hmm. the the argument that oh you know you're, you're cutting off so many nerve endings when you circumcise someone. Well yes, you are. But the thing is your brain then puts more weight and emphasis on the nerve endings that are remaining in your penis. So yes, you have fewer nerve endings, but the ones that are there are basically weighted more heavily. So your brain is still basically processing the same amount of erotic stimulation. You're just getting the stimulation and the input a little bit differently than someone who maybe has their, their foreskin. So it's not so much less, it's just different. And yes, you it's, it's, it might still like be upset. That you didn't get to experience the other thing that you would have maybe preferred to experience, but you shouldn't think of it as being like, you know, crippled or something like that's not really the right way of thinking about it, right?
1: You know, I'll say from experience that I found that men who are circumcised tend to get overstimulated faster than men who are not, uh, to, to men who are intact, we'll say, uh, who do have their foreskin. So um, a lot of that does have to do with the mental concentration of the fact that, hey, you're missing some of your nerves, so we're going to make these extra super powerful. Oh, God, that means that just a breath of the wind will, will cause you to be like, nope, okay, we're good. <laughs> so don't think anything like you're lesser, you're not as good as, you're not getting the full experience. You're still getting the full experience. It's just translated in a different way thanks to your neural mapping. Um, so similar to you know, what we went over earlier, the mouth and the lips are also an incredible erogenous zone for men. Um, some men find it, especially in gay relationships, there's a lot of like oral play, a lot more aggressive biting, you know, more aggressive tonguing we'll say. So the mouth and the lips, they tend to be a very erogenous zone because it does represent that physical attraction and mutual affection. Um, Regardless of the gender of the mate that you're kissing. So, you know, it's it's never discounts kissing when you're having sex. I know that there are some people that don't like to kiss anybody, that it's a big turn-off for them. Um, that's cool. That's fine. You don't necessarily The good thing about erogenous zones is that they are different for everybody. And just because you don't feel empowered or feel pleasure from one place, doesn't mean that you won't find another place that's just as good for you. So don't feel bad if you are listening to this list, perhaps, and you find, oh, well, I don't really enjoy that. That's cool. Everybody's different. And that's what's beautiful about it, because you get to experience the differences and you get to find what works for you. So the mouth and lips are good. Uh, the scrotum on men is also really good. There's a lot of really sensitive nerve endings, the 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 testicles, the ball sack, whatever yeah. you might
0: want to call it. <laughs> and this is actually uh, an old trick. This is uh, actually an old male courtesan trick. But the scrotum is also famous for being very uh, easily able to produce erections. So it's actually easier to get hard from stimulating your balls than it is from stimulating your dick. This is a weird trick, but I I, I dare you to try to get yourself hard just by fondling your balls. I'll guarantee you you get hard very easily doing that. So it's a a good trick if you're actually having difficulty or stage fright. Uh, Playing with your balls can actually get you hard in that situation pretty easily sometimes. So that's a fun fact. Uh, But the other thing I'll say is... Your mileage may vary on scrotum simulation. Some people love having their balls played with, tugged on, whatever, pawed at, and some men hate having their balls touched because they're too damn sensitive. And some, some guys, it's going to vary based on the weather, their mood, their stress levels. Sometimes like maybe the balls are hanging loose and then it's okay to touch them. Sometimes they're super tight and then it's not so fun to touch them. Maybe it's the other way around on that guy, who knows? This is one of those places where asking questions and saying, do you like having your balls touched? And if so, how do you like having your balls touched? This is a very important question.
1: Yeah, I think you and I differ on this in terms of enjoyment of ball play. I, no thank you.
0: Um, minor. Are- for me, it's very much mood dependent. If my balls are loose, I'm okay with it. I like having my balls played with it. But if my balls are tight, then it's unpleasant. So for me, it's actually a situational thing.
1: Me, it's just no thank you. Um, please don't. I mean, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the interest. Feel free to lick, but don't suck. Like, please be gentle. They are very sensitive. Um, a little bit of TMI for you, but here's just an example. It differs between everybody.
0: Yeah, and the next one also differs a lot between guys. This is another one that's very much your mileage may vary type situation, and that's the perennium or the perianal region, also known as the taint, the grundle, the area between your balls and your, your butthole, um, you know, all, all that good stuff. That's an area that a lot of guys will enjoy having uh, licking, touching, uh, maybe some light pressure, some kind of, some, some kind of groping, anything of that Gentil nature. Nibbling. Yeah. Nibbling. A lot of guys will enjoy that kind of st- uh, stimulation there. The thing is some guys who have very sensitive perianal regions and and perineums. And some guys don't for me, my perineum is not sensitive at all. And I actually kind of like, oh, thanks for doing that, I guess, but not really, okay, like not my favorite yeah. thing. And some guys, it's like, Whoa. holy crap, you touch them there and they're like, they're in like a mild, like they're in seventh heaven. It's almost like you're sucking their dick just to be lit lapping at the perineum. So it really does vary wildly. Uh, it can vary according to body types. So, uh, the guys who are more uh, he- uh, heavy set tend to have less sensitive uh, perineums just because there's more fat and tissue keeping the pressure from kind of getting transmitted to all the right nerves in that situation. Uh, but not necessarily. Sometimes it's just a matter of they're less sensitive, and that can vary. So, uh, yeah, for, for me personally, don't get a lot out of it. Some guys really get tons out of it. So, again, your mileage may vary on that one.
1: You know, one area that I find a lot of guys tend to really enjoy, and a lot of girls too, um, the thighs, uh, especially around the groin.
0: Inner thighs, thighs on the male. Inner yeah, thighs. inner thighs. This is one that I think like gets neglected a ton, and it's actually, like, this is my favorite erogenous zone. So if you're ever sleeping with me, I guess now you've got a little bit of a, an extra secret pro tip, but my thighs are, like, extremely sensitive. I almost, I swear to God, will prefer, like, if you offer me, hey, Vera, would you like to have really hot sex or a thigh massage? Like, it's not like coin flip, I might pick the, the, the thigh massage because my thighs are so sensitive, I can get really euphoric just from getting a, a thigh massage. So... Definitely don't underestimate the power of inner thighs or, and licking, stroking, nibbling, massaging, thigh massages, men carry a ton of their stress in their thighs. And so if you give a guy, you know, one of your, get maybe your man's not quite in the mood for sex, but you're really in the mood tonight and you're like thinking, well, I'm going to pull out all the stops. Maybe if I can just, if he, if he relaxes a bit, he'll be more in the mood, offer him a thigh massage because there's a very good chance after a thigh massage, he'll be raring to go. (laughs) It's a very, it's kind of a, almost a cheat code for getting a guy relaxed in the mood for sex. So definitely consider that as a, as an option. If you're, if you need the Konami code for like getting it up (laughs) the butt tonight, um, a thigh massage might be the trick.
1: You know, another area like kind of in the same er air zone is the, the feet. Um, A lot of guys, you know, and even girls too, uh, the feet can be a very erogenous zone, not just for massaging but for licking, for rubbing, for kissing. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come partnered with a foot fetish or you know being needing to see feet to be turned on. But a lot of people really, really like having their feet rubbed and touched, kissed on and licked. It can be kind of an unusual sensation for people, but a lot of uh, guys that I know, you know, if, if you're like, yo, let me suck your toes. They they're all in that's 100% what they want. Uh, kind of the same with hands as well, because when it comes to everyday stress for everyday people, we're on our feet a lot. We use our hands a lot, hand massages, uh, foot massages. Um, if you, um, if your partner wears heels often, some, a foot massage can be really relaxing and help kind of get the body in a nice, relaxed, aroused kind of state. So I always recommend, you know, hey, why don't we have a little bit of a foot massage? Why don't I rub your feet a little bit? Um, It can also play a part in dom-sub. Some doms really like having their subs worship their feet, you know, taking off their boots, rubbing the boots, rubbing the feet. can be an act of subservience, um, especially throughout history, because the feet were often regarded as kind of the most vile, dirty place on a human's body just because of the shoes that we wore and the dust in the air. So that's why, I mean, if you look at the Bible, when Jesus washed his disciples' hair uh, feet with his hair, it was viewed as this act of, like, humility and subservience to show that he valued them so much that he would wash what was considered to be a filthy part of their body with his hair. So... That's one of the parts of the body that, you know, a lot of people can really enjoy. Again, your mileage might vary. Maybe you don't like your feet being touched. Maybe you think they look weird and you're kind of sensitive about them. So ask your partner before you kind of go to kissing the feet. Maybe they want to take a shower because their work boots stink and they're worried about smelly feet in your face. So, you know, some considerations to take there, um, Another one, and this is kind of the same uh, as it was for women, you can go for the butthole. Uh, A lot of guys love being rammed. There's a lot of wonderful nerve endings there. Some guys don't like it. Some guys find it squicky. Some guys don't get anything out of it. It's just something they don't like their ass being eaten. They don't like their ass being penetrated. Their prostate is not very sensitive. Um, So it's something that you can ask. You can Kind of go through the questions you can try rubbing it, seeing if you enjoy it on yourself, have a partner that you trust, you know, kind of play around with it to see if you enjoy having other people touch you there. And if that's not the case, that's cool. Not everybody, not every, not even every gay man needs to have anal sex. Being gay does not mean that you have to have anal sex. Let's just get that straight.
0: <laughs> some, depending on the survey, something like 40 to 60% of gay men do not have anal sex as a primary sexual activity that they perform on a regular basis, which means they may have anal sex sometimes, but it's not part of their regular repertoire, right? right. So that's actually like important to keep in mind. Not everybody's butt-fucking, right? Like you can have a perfectly happy, healthy, functional gay relationship and not have butt sex. Butt sex is standard i guess but not required right
1: yeah um and then you know the rest of the areas you know they're they're from before the neck the nipples the ears the scalp you know places that are good for sensual touch good for sensual
0: rubs and massages nipples tend to be again a more of a mixed bag on the male side on the female side that's more of a sure thing that they're going to be sensitive some men have very sensitive nipples and some men do not so the kind of the overall pattern you'll find is that men can be a bit more variable with their erogenous zones and which ones are effective with women it's a bit more like the clitoris is maybe hard to find but once you know where it is you know it's you're good to go and then all these places to touch them are obvious but which ones actually work are kind of a mixed bag right <laughs> and you know there's a there's you know methods that you can use
1: on yourself and with your partner to discover which of these actually works. So body mapping is kind of self-exploration. A lot of therapists that work with individuals that have physical limitations, uh, handicaps, or other forms of challenges that they face use body mapping as a technique in order to help people who cannot have traditional penetrative sex, we'll call it, um, find pleasure within their own body. And it's it's where you were you're in a relaxed state you're in a calm state of mind and you just take time to gently touch your body to identify these areas of sensual pleasure areas that you don't like that are uncomfortable places that change your sensations Uh, you map you you create basically a blueprint a blueprint of pleasure for your body Now, this is something that's not really taught in sex ed, because sex ed traditionally doesn't really like talking about masturbation, and especially when it comes to women. I highly recommend females, if you have not taken the time to explore your vagina, explore the shit out of your vagina. You know, it helps you to identify which areas of your vagina really help enhance your pleasure. And you can find new places that you were unaware that helped make you sexually aroused. Now, the same goes for all parts of your body. You know, I recommend a head-to-toe, thorough examination, and you do it, you know, you don't want to done it. You do it because, time and time again, because sometimes you might have sensitive nipples if you're a guy, but after a few years, you realize that they're just like basically chew toys, and they don't really do anything for you, whereas once they were basically hardwired to your dick. So map out your body, take time to explore your body, and don't feel ashamed if you find that the area behind your ear, if you kiss on it or blow on it, it just makes you randy and ready to go. Don't find shame or don't shame other people for parts of their body that they really enjoy being stimulated in order to enhance their sexual play. It may not be an area of the body that you find comfortable touching. Some people don't like touching a butthole, for example. They find it to be filthy, to be dirty. Don't bring that kind of negativity or shame into it. You can say that you're not comfortable or you don't necessarily want to engage in that kind of play, and that's fine, but you don't need to bring negativity into it. Um, You can also try maybe working yourself up to that point if you find that You don't really like the idea of licking, you know, somebody's ear. It's kind of, there's a lot of earwax and it tastes kind of funky. Take time to explore in cases like that. Maybe you don't lick the inner ear canal. You don't jam your tongue inside, but you look around the outer lobes. You uh, nibble a little bit on the helix. You find ways to accommodate your partner without shaming them for, finding something pleasurable. Part of being in a relationship is that mutual pleasure and the trust that comes from being able to share these moments of vulnerability without being made to be felt shamed or afraid to to identify, hey, if you rub my inner thigh, I will fuck you like no tomorrow, (laughs) or... You know, in my case, my ears, since you gave away your inner thighs, I'll give away that my ears are kind of the cheat code for wanting me to have sex with you. Um, And I've had to warn people about that who were platonically like cuddling with me and they were kind of stroking my ear. I'm like, if you want to keep this platonic, you're going to kind of not do that anymore because you're getting to a weird spot (laughs) where I'm just going to be like, uh, can we please... (laughs) <laughs> so please, please stop making my dick want you. <laughs> like, we're good friends, but, but no, please don't do this to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, you gotta. And, that's the thing. You, you have to be. actually, that's, that's a good point about communication. Like, if a particular type of touch, even if it feels good, isn't welcome based on context, it's still worth mentioning that and and putting that out there, right? Like, don't be afraid to say that like, Hey, this feels really good, but based on the context of how the stimulation's like going down, like I'm not really down for this right now. Right.
1: Yeah. And I would recommend a sensate focus, uh, which is a technique that you can use with your partner, your mate. Um, Generally, this is done one-on-one. So if you're in a poly relationship, I would recommend that you do this with one partner at a time because you can't necessarily do this with multiples. So, What you do is you sit down and you kind of splay your legs and you have your partner sit against your chest, so their back is to your chest, and you take the time to kind of explore their body while everybody's in a nice, relaxed, enthused state of mind. Um, This can help build intimacy because the focus is not on penetration. The focus is on exploring each other's bodies because you will switch, you know, it's not just going to be you having like a moment where you just rub up and down your partner's body and they're like, okay, I know everything about you. So I'm good to go. Make sure that this is reciprocal by engaging in sensate focus. You can identify through changes in breathing, heartbeat ways and areas and techniques that you can use to help enhance your partner's enjoyment of sex. Um, What I like to do is I keep a hand kind of in the middle of the chest, um, right near where I can feel the heartbeat. And that kind of makes it even more intimate for some people. And it also allows me to feel their chest rise as they breathe, their heartbeat as it speeds up. And it helps serve as a gauge that is a little bit more accurate than the hardness of their dick. Because let's be honest, like once a dick is hard a dick is hard like it might be throbbing and pulsing but that's cool that's not really that accurate for me this is a time where you can communicate and especially if you come from you know a background where you've been bullied about your body type you feel shy about your body type this can be a way that you can kind of open up about that and you can overcome the shyness or the shame that you might feel about your own body so i would highly recommend this for mates Regardless of how long you've been together, to engage in in every now and then, it, the focus again is not on sexual penetration. The focus is not on taking you know the express train to Bone City. The focus is on each other and building that intimacy and trust, and letting both of you know that. Hey, you really like it when I touch you here, and that's really great. Now I know that, so next time I'll be able to use that, and you'll feel so much better. Sex, body mapping, erogenous zones, these are all areas of trial and error. And you're not going to get it right the first time, like Vera was saying. You're not going to become this master of sex after you lose your virginity, where you can just stick your hand down a woman's pants, and boom, I found your G-spot. Oh, you came.
0: That's not the way that
1: it works. So you have like, to take I'm somebody, the time.
0: I, I'm fairly experienced, and I mm-hmm. still approach a new partner as Terra Nova every time because I don't know that person, <laughs> and I don't I have to. I have to learn every new body that I play with. Right? Like that's the thing. And I think people who are more experienced at sex actually eventually will realize this: is that you can't treat everybody the exact same. You do have to treat everyone like they're a new, completely new experience or a new toy because they, they go, the way one person experiences a certain touch is not going to be how the next person does. Right.
1: Yeah. You can't treat everybody like they're the same. Just because they have the same parts doesn't mean that they have the same pleasures. So treat everybody as unique. Just because you've been with a hundred people doesn't mean that you know your next partner is going to be the same as numbers one through a hundred. So bear that in mind. Erogenous zones, these are places that are meant to enhance, that can bring pleasure and can build that intimacy within a relationship. You know, I find it incredibly intimate when I'm in a relationship with somebody and they just reach, you know, put their hands on the back of my neck and slowly rub, you know, there's not anything sexual happening, but the fact that they know that that makes me feel good and it brings me pleasure and I find that enjoyable shows that they have a deeper understanding and a deeper care as to making me feel good, especially in times of stress. So, learning these areas, learning your areas where you feel good, taking time to explore your body, and perhaps to work past any shame that has been imposed upon you by society, by parents, by churches, by sex ed, by whatever it might be, will help you to embrace your body and become a more confident and enjoyable lover to others. We're going to go ahead and move on. We have some feedback from last week's show. Um, the questioner wrote in about long distance DS relationship that they were in and how his uh, partner wanted, didn't really get any enjoyment in the long distance aspect of the Dom sub and really only felt that he could be enjoy, enjoy it when it was in person. The feedback was, I just wanted to say thank you for reading my question and taking the time to answer it. I know you yellow flagged from what I wrote, and I guess I should have provided a bit better context. I just didn't want to have a long letter. Uh, In short, just to point out, he has always been accepting of me being submissive and such. However, he just in the past didn't reciprocate it back very well. Since sending the letter in, I had a hard talk with him. It went really well, and turns out all I had to do was explain what I wanted. While he still gets no pleasure out of type fucking, he is able to satisfy my urges now by responding in specific ways to the things I do for him. I just wanted to send this out because I know some people like to know how things end up. Lesson is learned and I feel I should say this because I have a friend who is a sub like myself and they have the same issue. I shouldn't be afraid to talk to my master about my feelings of what I want and need or expect. In fact, it worked out really well and I feel we are now even closer. I think it's important that people should not be afraid to talk to their dom for fear of what they might say." I mean, for me, it wasn't so much fear as it was embarrassment. As I said, I had bad experiences before, and I'm still getting used to this different experience of having someone who has knowledge about dom up relationships. My previous ones were just masters who were selfish and they held all the control, and I wasn't to speak up or do anything or have any input and no contract, and I thought this is what it was supposed to be. That is the reason he had me read books and point me at research and resources. He wanted me to become more educated about what I was asking for and how to be informed on my input, and structure is just as important his words like i said in the group chat to me were if i just take what i want from you without having what you are okay with that is considered rape also your show was one of the resources he suggested so thank you for that i really appreciate what you guys do i'm really glad that you had this conversation with your master with your dom People in Dom sub relationships have to understand that just because there is a power exchange dynamic happening, there has to be open and honest communication that flows both ways. You know, it sounds like a lot of the previous relationships that you were in were, to be quite blunt, rather abusive, abusive. on the behalf yeah, that of that wasn't
0: that's not a DOM, that's just an abusive fuck. <laughs> like that's some yeah. story that's horror that's pretty horrifying that you had to to yourself to that. I'm really sorry you went through that. And, you know, the key metaphor that I always use in situation, I have an advice column where I wrote very explicitly about the, the very nature of the DS arrangement. And then kind of analogy I like to use is that, yes, the, the dominant or the master keeps the slave or the submissive in a cage, but that cage by necessity needs to be of the submissive design and they need to be able to let themselves out if they really want to in order for it to be consensual and safe and sane, right? So yes, it's like, essentially, you know, they make a lot of play toys that have this sort of secret release, right? So you'll make handcuffs and the handcuffs, Yes, they require a key to open, but there's also like a little kind of secret lever or latch on the on the back that lets you out of them without having the key, right? In case you misplace it, that's essentially what a sub is doing when a sub safe words out or says, "You know what? I need to break our relationship terms. I'm no longer going to be your submissive." Right? That's essentially using that little escape hatch on the on the handcuffs. But that hatch always needs to be there. And if you're with a dom who refuses to let you have that hatch and says it's my way or the highway, and you have no recourse. Unless that's something that really turns you on and you're an extremely experienced person with years, I mean, years of experience as submissive, and you really know that no recourse power exchange is for you, you have no business doing that. That is not, I repeat, not something you do if you are at all inexperienced. And I mean, like less than five years, less than basically an intense amount of self actualization, knowing exactly what it is that you need out of this relationship, and an incredible amount of self knowledge to know that you really want no recourse power exchange. And even then, a lot of people are still going to accuse you of being mentally ill for wanting that. It's a very extreme thing and it should not be treated or, or played with casually. And for some reason, the furry fandom, I see a lot of people just like trying total recourse power exchange as if it's this normal casual thing to do. And it is not at all. So, Don't just throw yourself into that. That is an absurd thing to do. You need to make, and I'm not saying you did anything wrong. I know you just acted out of not knowing any better because most people do that, right? But for those of you out there who have not yet made this mistake, please, 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 please do not just throw yourself into a no recourse power exchange where you're with some dom, quote unquote, who thinks he can just tell you to do whatever he wants and you've got nothing to say about it. That's not okay. Ah, that really is upsetting. (laughs)
1: I'll, I'll say from my general experience and perspective on this, that if you're in a dom sub relationship where the dom refuses to allow moments of egalitarianism or for some kind of an egal kind of phrase where you can turn it into an egalitarian discussion, um, especially if you're not in a total power exchange, uh, type of relationship, um, that is a very large warning sign. And that is a red flag and you should not continue down that path. Egalitarianism between Dom subs is incredibly important to not necess- to not just shaping the relationship, but to writing the course. And if you have no say as a sub in the relationship, then you're not really in the relationship. So it's, it's important to have that straight out the gate, that there is some way for you to have egalitarian moments for you to Express your feelings, express your doubts, express your needs, express how they're not being met, express what you changes need to happen, because it is a non-legally binding relationship that you're in, essentially. Uh, I mean, if you're married, that's a separate kind of contract, but the DS contract is not legally enforceable. So don't treat it as such. If you need to change things, change things. And if your dom refuses to allow moments of egalitarianism, that's a just don't. Just please find find something healthier and find something that is more safe, sane, and consensual. We also have a question. Um, before I get that to that, thank you for writing back and letting us know how everything went. Like we say on the show, you know, communication is essential in all relationships, and I'm glad that you were able to work it out and that you got over the embarrassment that you had and your dom was there to reassure you that everything's fine. Again, communication is so essential to relationships, regardless of the structure, regardless of who or how many people are in it. So just bear that in mind. If you are afraid to talk about something, as we've said and stolen from People far smarter than us, the most, you know, the difficult things in your relationship, the most difficult things are the things that are the most important to talk about. So we're going to move on to our question, though. But thank you, Franklin Vo, for that. Our questioner wrote in uh, with the subject help. I fell in love with my long distance relationship, but after seeing a photo, I can't find attraction to him. Um, they write To start things off, I have always been furry since sexual awakening, but I can never find humans attractive, so I avoided the porn. After a few normal, unsuccessful relationships where I would not find any attraction to the person, I decided to try and seek out furries. After chatting online for a while and becoming a part of a small community of amazing furries, I ended up pairing up with someone. It was amazing. We chatted for months, and I legitimately felt like I was in love, both with the persona and the person online. I sucked it up and revealed myself to him, and he to I, and it was like a switch was hit. I no longer found him attractive due to his physical appearance. I feel so incredibly shallow and terrible for feeling this way, even if it seems like I cannot control it, but worse off, I am very worried what this might do to him. We have not yet met in real life, but I am now terrified of doing so, and I do not want to reject him in such a way to hurt him. I have tried a lot, uh weaning myself into regular porn or trying to look at the bright side, but I am just met, you know, with a mental block of revulsion. Please help.
0: Uh I'm really sorry for you. You're in a really rough position I my heart goes out to you because there's really, unfortunately, not a super happy outcome for this scenario. Um. Oh. This is one of the, this is why we talk about unfortunately the need to kind of communicate and you know know yourself before entering into something like this because the place where you could have maybe avoided a nasty outcome would have been before getting months down the road with this person and now you're finally first exchanging photos right so that's that's unfortunately not the best course of action because when you get to this point it's already kind of too late there's no way to let somebody down from a multiple months long relationship without hurting their feelings the end of that relationship is going to hurt there's kind of just no avoiding that. It's going to hurt the other person. Um, The one thing I will say though, there are ways you can mitigate that. And that's very much by making sure that you communicate that the issue is with you and that the issue is not an issue with them. And that it's not that they are ugly or that they are not attractive, but instead what you're going to say to them is that I might, I am somewhere maybe on the gray sexual or asexual spectrum I don't really experience I'm, I'm learning about myself as I go and I've really enjoyed my relationship with you and the romantic and emotional intimacy aspects of our connection have been amazing and I'm incredibly attracted to your personality and your persona and I really enjoy spending time with you however I really and for some reason I don't feel an erotic desire for you based on the fact that I don't feel an erotic desire for any human being and as a result I'm not sure if it's in the cards for us to truly have a sexual or romantic relationship as much as I really enjoy the more platonic or emotionally invested aspects of our relationship. I don't think a sexual relationship is really going to be in the cards for us on the basis of the fact that I'm realizing about myself that I'm just not attracted to human beings, right? I think that's the conversation to have with your, I guess, mate at at the moment, because that's gonna to communicate to them that you're not rejecting them. What you're, re- what you're basically what's happening is that you're on a journey of self-discovery and that over the course of this relationship, you've been learning about yourself and you've learned that you're really not attracted to human beings. And if you had known that really and truly understood that the entire time, you wouldn't have hid that from your partner. But the fact was you just were learning that about yourself as you were going and you're, you're gonna be apologetic. You can say, you know, I'm extremely sorry if you feel let on. I didn't really know any better. I was still trying to figure out my own sense of attraction. I do really like you as a person, and I'm really sorry if you feel misled, but I just don't think I can be sexually attracted to you. And, you know, I think that's the kindest way you can possibly explain it, is to kind of be vulnerable and, and kind of appeal for empathy. And if the person on the other end really did care about you and loved you as well, hopefully they'll have an empathetic response to that. And while they might be a little bit bummed that you they aren't, you know, making you, you know, completely wet with desire for them, hopefully they'll at least appreciate the honesty and will maybe be able to salvage a close friendship from this, if not a somewhat emotionally invested, maybe romantic, but kind of companionate romantic relationship rather than a sexual relationship. All those things are are possible, but you won't be able to get there unless you're honest with your mate. Which is basically the the point you're at now: is you do need to come clean and and be honest about how you're feeling. The way that I explained it is probably the more uh, empathetic and perhaps the more compassionate way of doing so. You don't you may say, "Oh, I don't like you because you're ugly." That's probably not the way to go, right? And don't say anything that could be construed that way, because that's really not the issue. The issue is very much so just that you seem to be on the sexuality spectrum somewhere. So, which is not, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just an issue of obviously it's creating a a conflict in this relationship for you. And that's something that we now need to work on resolving. Do you have any uh, further tips for that Metrico?
1: I would just say that it sounds like you, the questioner also have a lot of self-discovery to go through. Um, One thing that's important to note is that you should never feel that you have to force yourself into a box. Um, If you're gay, you shouldn't feel the need to be forced into a heterosexual relationship because you really like the person and you want to make them happy. It's important that you stay true to yourself, um, even if it's a little bit awkward, even if it's not what society would expect from you. Now, I will say that it is important, especially within the fandom, that you recognize that there is a distinct difference between somebody's persona and somebody's real life existence. And you try not to become attracted to a persona expecting that that's what that that's the package you're getting. Um, it, it sounds like you might perhaps be better suited for the time being. Engaging in role play as opposed to a dating scene. And that could be something that works for you, something that you're able to get sexual and intimate gratification from without leading people on. But I think that you have a lot of thinking about yourself, thinking about what you're looking for. And you don't necessarily have to change who you are, but you might change the actions that you take in order to find what you're looking for. To all of our listeners, we always invite you to comment, to give your feedback, to give your solutions, your thoughts on all of the questions and everything that we talk about on the show. If you have additional advice that you think that we missed or think that we got it wrong, please let us know. Visit our contact page on our website at feralattraction.com contact many ways to get into touch with us anonymously. You can message us on Twitter, on telegram. You can call us so many ways to get into touch with us. So many ways to get involved with the show. Next week, we're going to talk about polyamorous and monogamous mixed relationships. What do you do in a relationship where you have some partners who are monogamous and other partners who are polyamorous? How can you make that blended style relationship work for everybody?
0: It's an interesting topic, and it's one that we get asked about a lot. It's also one that I've been personally a part of, and that I think is honestly one of the most challenging relationship structures in existence. So I think it'll be a worthwhile topic to get its own full treatment in a show. So
1: that's our topic for next week. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, let us know again. Visit our contact page. There, you'll also find information about maybe you want to leave a rating or a review for us on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. Maybe you have some extra coins in your pocket that you would like to throw our way. Well, you can help us out with that by visiting our Patreon. We have different donation tiers, and one of them does allow for shout outs at the end of every episode. Um, one such patron and friend of the show is Snares. Uh, he has his own Patreon, Patreon.com/snares, which is a one-stop shop for commis- for you know commissions and artist information as well as his comic project, which is Kaiju's. Uh, the the flavor is buff. It is an episodic comic that releases each month, and it is free to read. Patrons do get early access and rewards, though, so consider that maybe. And it's a comic about kaiju's, macrophers, size growth. Things of that nature. If you're into those things, or if you really just like a well-drawn, well-written story about inner strength and fighting Godzilla-style monsters, that's a great option for you, too. Uh, I've read a preview of it, and I think it's fabulous. Another friend of the show and patron is Zarpaulis, who is an author. And if you're a fan of furry and high-tech sci-fi stories, you might be interested in the Para-Imperium universe that they have written. Um, He has actually recently published a short novel with the Thirst and Hell Press that is titled The Pride of Parahumans, and you can check it out on Amazon. And, you know, if it's, it's good speculative fiction, science fiction. If you like things like StarCraft, you might be interested in his stories. You should give it a look and check out his Patreon at patreon.com slash Maybe you're looking for a new friend on Twitter. Well, Myron is another friend of ours and patron. His Twitter handle is at Myron the Fluffy. Um, follow for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings a little bit lighter, fluffier side of life. It's always great to have new friends. We're going to end the episode there. Again, thank you to everybody who has written. Thank you to the questioner and to the individual who gave us feedback about their question from last week. We appreciate it and we are always grateful to have such a level of involvement within this show. Next week again, we're talking about poly, mono, mixed relationships. Until then, I'm Metrico, and
0: I'm Zero, the Science Collie. Be well.